The title of our message today is Crying Out, Abba, Father. There are three passages in the Bible that speak of this. I have a subtitle, what it means to be adopted into the family of God. How real is that adoption? And what does it mean for you as an individual that you have been adopted into his family? We're going to cover those today in this passage that Paul deals with it. Now, there are three passages in the New Testament that use the word Abba and the phrase Abba, Father. And um, this might shock you, but there's disagreement about what it means. It's funny when you start really diving into something, it seems like there's always disagreement about what it means. Uh, I want us to read. I want to get into what that disagreement is. And let me just give it to you basically this. Some people say that Abba is like daddy and it's like a child crawling up on dad's lap. And so when you say Abba, you're just like a child, you know, loving on, on the father like a child does to the father. Others, because of the phrasing of the word, and I'll get into this, believe it's more formal, that it is a Middle Eastern son submitting to the father, even an adult son submitting to the father. And that would be a reference to Abba uh, being a, an adult son submitting to the will of the father, no matter what. And you remember in the garden, it's one of the places Jesus cries out, Abba, father. So that kind of fits in a way. And we'll talk about what it means. I think it might surprise you by the time we get into exactly what this means, uh, what it means for you and me. So let's start um, by looking at the three different passages that deal with Abba. The first one is our text today, and that's Galatians 6, 1 through 7. I think I said 1 through 6, but 1 through 7. But I want to start in 6. I just want to read 6 and 7. We're going to come back and we're going to dive into these passages. We're going to unpack them. But I want us to start with verses 6 and 7, just because we're looking now at Abba Father. So in verse 6, it says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. And if a son, an heir of God in Christ. So this passage is connected to adoption, the fact that God has adopted you as a child. And you remember at the end of our last study, actually at the beginning of our last study, the end of the last chapter, that there was a statement there about adoption. You have been adopted as sons. We are in God's family because we've been adopted. And that's very significant because under the law, you were not a child of God. The children of Israel were overall the children of Israel, but each individual was not a child of God. But we are adopted into his family through faith and we become a child of God. So he continues on in that thought. In fact, the chapter break here in chapter four is kind of unfortunate. I don't know who put the chapter breaks in and I'm really glad they're there, but sometimes it breaks up a passage that really needs to be together. And this one and the one we studied last week really needed to be together as well. So the second passage is Jesus praying this in the garden. And this is Mark 14, 35 and 36. It says, he went a little further and fell on the ground, prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, this is an important connection because you remember that we were taught to pray by Jesus in this manner, our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, and then says, not my will, but your will. He's following the pattern that he gave us when we're supposed to pray. And it's a good thing for us because God knows things better than us for us to say, Lord, whatever your will is. Life is difficult. Life is tough. Everybody suffers. Everybody will suffer. If you're not suffering right now, you have someone close to you who is. And if you're one of those rare people that don't have suffering going on and no one close to you is suffering, just give it time and there will be suffering. And the Bible tells us this. And the Bible doesn't encourage us by saying, don't worry, there won't be any more suffering. The Bible encourages us by saying the sufferings of this world cannot be compared to the glories that we are going to receive. One day we will enter into a world without any suffering. And so Jesus, in the midst of agony in the garden, going through emotional suffering by taking our grief on himself, cries out, Abba, Father. And then we have another passage in Romans. And this is Romans 8, 14 through 16. And this is very much like Galatians. It's interesting. Galatians is one of the first books Paul wrote, probably in the late 40s, which is so early. It, it, when people used to criticize that the Bible was written so late, you could have never have thought that any of the New Testament would be written within 15 years of the resurrection of Jesus, any New Testament book. But the, the book of Galatians was written in the late 40s. And this is a consensus among scholars, by the way. Some might push it to the early 50s. But at that point, you're just quibbling a little bit. It really is early. And the Christology of Galatians is phenomenal. It's deep. Everything is already developed by this time. We're talking about his resurrection, him being God, his deity. All of that is developed within the book of Galatians. Romans is one of the latest books that's written. And so you have this passage out of Galatians that talks about sons, the Spirit of God, crying out, Abba, Father. And now you've got a passage in Romans and listen to how much it sounds like the passage in Galatians, even though there's a good chunk of time between the time that Galatians was written, written and Romans was written. Galatians, one of the earliest books, Romans, one of the latest. Romans 8, 14 through 16. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but receive the spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father. Very much like Galatians. You are a son. And earlier in that passage, it talks about adoption. And here, the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So one of the ways that we know that we're saved is that the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are truly children of God which means that we have this special relationship with God. Now, I found a dictionary definition for the Aramaic language because we're not that familiar with Aramaic. We don't really know that well what it is. I mean, people who are linguists do, okay? But we hear about Aramaic and we wonder what it is and we know that certain parts of the Bible are written in Aramaic. So let me give you this dictionary definition. And um, I didn't write down what the dictionary, which dictionary it was, uh, but you can, you can go back and look for yourself um, on some of this information if you're interested more in the Aramaic language. This is a little lengthy. Just let me take time to read it to you. I mean, not super lengthy. It's not like 20 minutes or anything, okay? But it's going to be a minute or so. Um, Aramaic is a Semitic language, which was lingua franca in much of the Near East and the 7th century BC. Now, lingua franca is a, is when a language is chosen 
by a country that has a lot of different languages to be its official language. So the, the old USSR had dozens of languages of all of the countries from the USSR. But the lingua franca was uh, Russian. It was the agreed upon language. So in the Middle East, the Near East, uh, Syria, Babylon, Aramaic was spoken, all of them as a, an agreed upon language. From 7 BC, well, let me read this and you'll get it. I was just about to tell you what I'm going to read. It, it says, um, of much of the Near East, from about seventh, the 7th century BC until the 7th century AD, 1400 years this language was used, when it was largely replaced by Arabic. Classical and empirical, uh, imperial Aramaic was the main language of the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrian empires, and spread as far as Greece and the Indus Valley. Alexander the Great destroyed the Persian Empire. Aramaic ceased to be the official language. Greek became the official language after Alexander the Great of any major state, though continued to be spoken widely. It was during this period that the Aramaic split into Western and Eastern dialects. So you have two different dialects of Aramaic that broke in apart when Alexander the Great came on the scene. Aramaic was once the main language of the Jews and appears in some Dead Sea Scrolls. It is still used in liturgy languages by Christian communities in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and spoken by a small number of people in Iraq, Turkey, Armenia, Georgia, and Syria. Today, biblical Aramaic, Jewish, non-Aramaic dialects and Aramaic languages of the Talmud are written in the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, Aramaic and Hebrew are related languages, while the Syriatic alphabet is used to write Syriatic and Christian non-Aramatic um, dialects and other, so basically certain Christian groups uh, write it in Arabic instead of in Hebrew, but it's a connected language. And it was the language that Jesus spoke. Now, there is some debate about that. Some will try to say that Jesus spoke Greek, but he spoke Aramaic. How do we know this? Because the Bible uses certain phrases that are Aramaic and then gives us the translation into English. Talitha kumi, when he went in to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he took her by the hand and said, Talitha kumi, and then we're told, little girl arise. That's Aramaic, and then a Greek, little girl arise. So we have Jesus's words in Aramaic. He interacted with people in Aramaic. Jesus knew Hebrew. There's no doubt. He went into the synagogues and he picked up the scrolls and he read them. Not only could he speak Hebrew, he could write it, he could read it. We know that. He could read and write Aramaic because everybody could in his day. We know that. We think he spoke Latin or Pilate spoke Aramaic, which I guess either one of them is possible. Maybe even more so that Pilate spoke Aramaic being in the area because Jesus and Pilate went in by themselves and had a conversation. So they were speaking either in Aramaic or Latin. And that Jesus knew Greek um, is a question as well. Probably at least was familiar with it. Probably could speak some of it, kind of like most of us can speak some Spanish. Uh, so at least he had that. Maybe he was schooled in it in other ways. But we don't know completely and for sure. Let's talk about this example because I think that we get an idea of why it says Abba, Father, with Talitha Kumi, little girl arise. So let's talk about that example for a minute. That's in Matthew 5, excuse me, Mark 5, 41. And he goes into Jairus' house and it says, and he took the girl, the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. 
But this is not a translation. Talitha means lamb or little lamb. So Jesus kind of stood as a shepherd and said, little lamb, arise. But it's also believed by some scholars, in fact, there's some pretty strong evidence for this, that in the Middle East, little girls were called little lambs. It was kind of like a, you know, a little princess. It was kind of like that term, little lamb for girls. So that Jesus was using a tender known term that was synonymous with child or girl. Little lamb arise, but also showing that position of a shepherd who takes care of those who are in need. And he will one day for all of those who trust in him as a shepherd, rise them up from the dead. So it is not a one-to-one correlation. Sometimes there's an Aramaic word for water and there's an Aramaic word for Greek in Greek and they could easily be, be spoken over. But sometimes there's not. And that's the case with Abba. There's nothing that connects. It's not daddy. It's not daddy-o. It's not papa. It's not the father. It's, it's none of those. It is unique in itself. And that's why every translation I looked up, and I looked up quite a few, had Abba Father. I just wanted to know, is there any translation that translates this word Abba differently, this, this Aramaic word differently? And I couldn't find one. It might be out there, but I couldn't find one. So Ab, A-B, means father. That's the word for father in Aramaic. By the way, it's also the word for father in Hebrew. Abram, Abram, is father in Hebrew. Abraham is father of many. Abba is connected to father for sure because the first two words are Abba. The B-A, ba, in it, is the. So literally, it would be translated the father. And this is why people say that there's a mistake when you're trying to make this daddy, like crawling up in the lap of daddy, because it's very particular, the father. But just because there's a term in Aramaic that is formal doesn't necessarily mean that that word was used in a formal way. It seems that it was used in other ways as well. So um, both the Aramaic word Abba is, uh, both of the ideas is that there is a closeness or an intimacy, either as an official father that you're submitting to, you're close to him, he's your official father, and now because of that, you are going to be obedient to him. That's one argument. But it still speaks of a relationship, the closeness of a relationship. If it's Abba in the sense that of, of, a, of a child having a, a tender word for a father, like you might when you were a kid, or maybe you have it when you're older. My oldest son calls me Pops. He's 36 years old. My daughter calls me Daddy-O. So they have pet names for me as adult children for me. And you, got, you might have the exact same thing going on in your family. So that's not to say that that Aramaic word might not have been that in some way or another. It certainly was different than father. Otherwise, you wouldn't have Abba father. Father represents something and Abba represents something else. Um, you, I, I didn't have an, if, if Abba is intimacy, and I think it is, I think Abba is intimacy and closeness and a close loving relationship with God. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And then we have a heavenly father that cares for us. He has the responsibility. He takes care of the birds of the air. How much more will he take care of you? That's not the closeness and intimacy of a father. That's the responsibility of a father. 
So you guys have fathers that were very responsible. They took care of you. They disciplined you. They had a desire and a goal to get you to adulthood. I, I know people that it's like, I get my kids to 18, I'm done. You're out the door, you're on your own. I've done my job as a father. And then there are some who are very close to their children. If Abba is that close intimacy, and I believe it is, I never had that with my father. My father died when I was 14 years old. My father was a hard man in a time where, I don't know, in, in my experiences, my dad never said, I love you, never told me, Robert, I love you. I just want you to know I love you. So I never had that. And my dad died of Lou Gehrig's disease when I was 14. Two years before that, he was diagnosed with it. If you know anything about Lou Gehrig's disease, it's a debilitating disease. You deteriorate with it. And so from the time I was 12, from 12 on, I didn't have any kind of a relationship with my father, much less a close one, because he was at the hospital and going through those things and often just kind of going off. Um, my dad was a brutal dis disciplinarian. So I never had that Abba relationship with him. However, he's a good provider. He was, he was bound to determine to make sure I turned out to be a good adult. At 12 years old, he shook his fist at me when, when he found out he had Lou Gehrig's disease and said, I'm going to make a man out of you. I'm not quite sure that's the way to try to make a man out of someone by shaking your fist at a 12-year-old because I'm just like, I don't know what this is all about. I had no idea. But some of you are blessed and you have a close relationship with your father. You have a blessed relationship with them. And I missed that when I was growing up. As a teenager, I missed it. And even though I knew some of my friends were having trouble with their dads, I still missed that close relationship with them. And I was able to have that close relationship when my wife was pregnant with our, with our daughter, that I could now have a father-child relationship. And my son, my sons, that I could now have a father-child relationship. So I was able to have that Abba. But some of you have a close relationship and you know Abba Father. You, you have the intimacy, you're close, you share love, you tell one another you love each other. You have your own little circumstances in which you interact with each other to show the love of a father to a son and a son or a daughter to a father. And so that's Abba. And then there's father when you need something. Even when you're older, you can go to your father, right? Most of us can anyway. You can go to your dad because your dad will say like, all right, fine. And they'll help you out. So that's the idea. The idea is Abba, father. Lord, you really love me. You really care about me and I love you and I need you here. Abba, Father. Our spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all of our strength, and knowing that God is there to watch over us and take care of us. He's even with us in the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always. And the Father is always with us. And the Son is, the Spirit of the Son is in us. And the Father and the Son have a place inside of us, which is amazing. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he said, I and my father will come and have a place inside of you. And the word for place there is the same word. And it's the only two times it's used in the Bible. I'm going to prepare a place for you and the father and the son will have a place in you. So we have a place, God has a place with us now and we'll have a place in God later on. Um, how close was the heavenly father? How, how close was Jesus to the heavenly father? Certainly very close. So much so that we see that in the garden of Gethsemane that when he's full of sorrow, when he's full of grief and he needs it, he cries out Abba. 
And that's when we can cry out Abba, when we need it, when we have a need in our life and we need the mercy and the love of a father who when they see a son or a daughter whose heart is broken, want to do anything they can to be able to help them. And I think that that's what this speaks of. It speaks of closeness and it speaks of the officialness of the father. And that's why the two terms that mean father, Abba, father. And even if it is a more formal word and it's a son who makes an outright commitment to the father, then that's still intimacy and it's still closeness. It's a decision of the son to say, I will do what God wants me to do. And if you prefer that, if you think, well, that sounds more too, like it than, to me, well, then take it that way that you're in complete submission to him, Abba. You're, you're the father. I'm in complete and total submission to you. But those are the two ideas. I think closeness, intimacy is, is what it speaks of. So let's go ahead and take a look at our text. So um, Galatians 4, 1 through 7, it's in the context of sons and daughters being adopted. And he, gets, he starts off with an analogy. He says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards. Now, I realize that slavery is brought up here, and slavery is one of those hot buttons that critics of the Bible like to point out that the Bible somehow condones slavery. I want to say this. The Bible never condones antebellum slavery. Antebellum slavery was one of the worst kinds of slavery this world has ever seen. And the Bible doesn't condone it. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says that if you are caught selling a person or in possession of a sold person, you would be put to death. So that's really important to understand. And when the Bible in the New Testament talks about slaves, it talks about servitude. There, were, there weren't prisons. You could become a servant of someone if you owed them for doing something to them. If you were in debt, you could become a servant. You could become a slave from another country. But it was very, very common in their day. But don't read it as antebellum because antebellum slavery here in the United States, as I said, was one of the worst forms of slavery that there ever was. And um, we won't deal with it tonight, but we'll deal with it on another occasion where we can really dive in and talk more about what uh, this uh, that what slavery was like in the Bible and the protections that God put into place because God did put protections in. He allowed, see, here I go talking about, it. it's like, I just can't let it go. He allowed certain things to take place, not because he wanted them or approved of them, but because he knew they were happening, like divorce. You remember that Jesus said, Moses allowed divorce. And it's in the law that you could give a written letter of a divorce to your wife. And, and Jesus says, Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your heart. God didn't want it, but because of the hardness of the heart of the men, don't turn it around to the women. Don't ever tell a woman who has been cheated on by her husband that don't let your heart get hard. Don't tell a woman that. He's already hardened his heart. She now has a decision to make that is biblical. She can leave him or she can choose to stay with him. And maybe God would move to have her stay with him, but that's her choice. And that verse is so misused. It's a pet peeve of mine, if you can't tell. I all of a sudden got fired up. Don't you ever... Tell the woman that. I, seriously, it's like when, when women are told that, it just gets my hackles up. I'm like, why in the world? It's the hardness of the heart of the offender, not the offended. Don't go to the offended and tell them not to harden their heart. It's the offender who's hardened their heart. 
Go to the offended and minister to them and love them and let them know these are your options. And God's given you these options. And one of them is to forgive and restore. That's one of your options. But so is leaving the relationship. You can forgive and still leave the relationship. We'll deal with that another time. Here I am. Marriage, divorce, slavery. We're all over the place. All right. So God allows sometimes certain things to happen because they're happening, not because he wants them to happen. And so God allowed slavery and he put in protections for the slave throughout the law. And someday we'll talk about that. Um, but I want you to notice here that the child who is the heir is treated the same way as the slave. We, we got to think Roman world when we're thinking of Galatians. Paul's in the Roman world. Paul was a Roman citizen. So we got to think of Roman slaves. And so he says that the child is the same as a slave. The heir, how would you treat an heir? Why would you treat a seven, eight, nine-year-old heir? He's the heir of the family and he's treated the same as a slave. So at this point, at least Paul is talking about slaves being treated well. They're being treated like the heir is. Let's read it again. Verse one, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the appointed by, until the time appointed by the father. So that's the analogy. An heir that has everything. You and I have all known people who have an, uh, some kind of inheritance coming. I know family who had an inheritance coming and the family withheld it from them, pushed it out as far as they could and it ended up being total and complete rebellion. I felt when it was happening, you know what? They just should give the kid the money. Just give the kid the money. If he blows it all, either way, you know, e either way it's bad. He's full of hatred and bitterness now because it's being withheld from him. He's dividing from the family now. It's like at some point, figure something out. Figure out a way to give him something instead of just drawing the line hard in the sand and making him draw a line harder. I'm all over the place. All right, let's go back. That's the analogy. The analogy is an heir who is, uh, who is not gotten his, his, his inheritance yet, but he's under a guardian. Then he says, even so, verse three, when we were children... We're in bondage under the elements of the world. He's not just talking about those who were under the law, but you were under the elements of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the destruction of sin in our lives, which God came to set us free from. God wants to set us free from the destruction that comes from sin and selfishness. We were under the elements of this world, but when... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth of his son, born of a woman. Look at the term there, when the fullness of time had come. Why did Jesus come when he did? Specific time. In Jesus's ministry, he says this. He's talking to Capernaum and Corazon, which are two cities that he ministered in. He says, if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented with sackcloth and ashes. So the question is, well, why didn't he come to Sodom and Gomorrah then? If Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented at the Messiah's coming, why didn't he come during the time of Sodom and Gomorrah? Because the time wasn't full yet. It wasn't time for it. It was the exact right time for the Messiah to come. In the exact right place, by the way. The Roman roads were completed. You could now get anywhere in the world through the Roman roads. The trade routes were completed and there was trade happening from Europe down around through Israel into Africa and over into Iraq 
and, and Syria from up in Europe that would go through Israel and then from Africa up into Europe. So people were crossing on the trade routes all of the time on the Roman roads. The gospel started in, in Jerusalem and from Jerusalem it spread under persecution out into other places on Roman roads. Also, there was one common language, the Greek language, which was a much more colorful language than Aramaic. And the, the Greek language was now all over the world and was considered to be the official language and the Bible would be written in Greek. There's some Aramaic in the book of Daniel and I think there's another Aramaic section somewhere else. But other than that, it's Greek and it's Hebrew. Those are the three biblical languages, Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew. So when the fullness of time came, it was, just, it was, it was the right time for the Messiah to be born. It was the right time for him to die. The world was ready to accept what would happen there. The gospel spread quickly within a few decades of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel was around the world. And this is what critics have to explain when they say things like, by the way, most scholars now do not believe that Jesus was a myth. When I say most scholars, I mean even scholars who are critics of Christianity believe Jesus existed. Because when you say things like, well, he was a myth and you ignore the fact that the world changed within a few decades of the time that he was supposed to be here. How does that happen? How do you go from a myth to changing the world? How do you have people like Paul the Apostle, who was an enemy of the church, becoming a leader in the church? How do you have people like James, who's the brother of Jesus? How do you have Roman, Roman uh, historians writing about Jesus being crucified under Pontius Pilate? These are not Christ the, the Gospels. These are Roman historians that write about Jesus and his crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. And it's not just Josephus. There's Tatticus and there's others. So it was the fullness of time and the gospel would spread around the world. It says that he was born of a woman. That is, he didn't have an earthly father, but he was born of a woman. You could say everyone was born of a woman and maybe it's speaking just of his manhood, uh, of the fact that he was human, but it harkens back Isaiah 7, 14, behold, I give you a sign, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And we've seen that Paul just got done. This, this should be connected to the last section where Paul says, you were kept under guard until the Christ came and then you are no longer under the law. So he came under the law to free those who were under the law so that they would not be under the law. And that generation, Paul's generation, Paul was born under the law. Remember, Paul is just a few years younger than Jesus, maybe six, seven, eight years younger than Jesus. That's how old Paul is. And so Paul was born under the law and then went through the transition where he was no longer under the law. And Paul declared just directly, I am not under the law and I will not put away grace. So he goes on to say, uh, where are we at? All right. So he goes on to say, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, adoption in biblical times, just like today, was uh, very, um, very complete. A child that is adopted today in the United States becomes your child with every rights all of your other children have. 
and the other children understand they're coming in as a child with full rights. And so it was in the ancient world. In fact, Octavian, who was Julius Caesar, was Octavian's great uncle. And Julius Caesar adopted Octavian and Octavian became his heir with every right of every other child of his. And he became the emperor after Julius Caesar because he was adopted into the family. That's how strong Roman adoption was. You became another child with all of the rights. You were not a second-class child. You were adopted into the family just like a real child. And you and I have been adopted into God's family. And Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. And the rest of us are adopted. But we are heirs together with Him. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that we are co-heirs with Christ. No wonder it says in Corinthians, you have all things. Everything belongs to you. You and me, we have it all. You say, I don't have nothing. Bank account's empty. I don't have a car. I don't have nothing. Oh, no. You have it all. You're just a child that's waiting for the, for the inheritance to take place. That's all. You're an adopted son of God, daughter of God. And you've got it all. If you ever thought, man, what if, what if some, you know, rich aunt that I didn't know died? You always want it to be someone you don't know so you don't look that bad, right? And all of a sudden I got this inheritance. I was suddenly rich. Well, you are rich. The child who was an heir had everything. It just wasn't realized yet. And we have it all. And so the glories of the world to come is nothing to be compared to the sufferings that we face here and now because of who we are. So we are adopted as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. This is another passage that tells us that when you are born again, the 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 Holy Spirit baptizes you into the family of God. The Bible says the Holy Spirit immerses you into the family of God. This has nothing to do with water baptism. The passage that says we have an antitype that now saves us, baptism, is not talking about water baptism saving you. Water baptism doesn't save you. It's talking about immersion into Christ, into the family of God. We are immersed into the body of God by Christ. And the Spirit of God... Uh, he sends into our hearts. So the moment that you are born again, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And then he says, crying out because the Spirit's in our heart, Abba, Father. We have that complete, that full relationship with God, which is what Abba, Father means. The complete, full, um, lacking in, in nothing relationship with Him. Whether it's the submission to God when you don't want to do it, if that's what, some, that's what some people think, or whether it's the close love intimacy of a, of a dad that you have a great relationship with, and maybe even both of those. But Abba and Father can't mean the same thing. They're not saying Father in one language and Father in another language. They're two different aspects of that fatherhood in your life. And the, and the Son sent the Spirit that you would cry out, Abba, Father. And I just encourage you, if somehow you still feel distance from, distant from God as a child of God, to know who you are. To know you're an adopted son and daughter. To have that love relationship with him. To really and truly love him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Because that's what we're told to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two of the greatest commandments. And you fulfill all of the law by loving one another. He goes on and says, therefore, 
you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Inheritance. You have it all. If you're a child of God, adopted into the family of God, then you have the inheritance of everything. There's nobody that has more than you. You have it all. You just haven't realized it yet. And what a great thing for us to know. As we go through this life, as every day we take a step closer to being in the presence of Jesus, as will happen if Jesus tarries, will happen with each one of us, that we will go into his presence and we will suddenly discover our inheritance. I have an inheritance that I'm co-inheriting with Jesus Christ. And so do you. What an absolutely amazing thing. May we live now like that's true, knowing we have it all. There's no reason to envy. There's no reason to be distraught. There's no reason to be jealous. We have everything because we've been adopted into the family of God. And it's a very real adoption. It's not a second-class adoption. We are equal to the Father as Christ in several different ways. And I'm not saying we're God. Don't, don't, somebody said, God, Robert said we're equal to Jesus. Therefore, I'm not saying that. You know what I'm saying, right? So we are in our inheritance equal with Christ. And what a great thing that is. All right, stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And as we're taking our time to make our way through this book in understanding this Abba Father that is brought up three times in the New Testament. And Lord, I pray that we would have both of those aspects with you that deep love relationship and that reliance on you as our father and your will in our lives, that your will would be done. We know you know better than us. We know you see things better than us. We know you know what we need and when we need it. And so we pray that we would have that true, real Abba Father relationship with you. And thank you that you've adopted us, that you've called us children of God, that we are heirs together with Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.